Well, as you can see by the screen, the reading this morning is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through to verse 11. And it's entitled, Jesus Changes Water into Wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, the servants Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine he did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew then he called the bridegroom aside and said everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Thank you, Rod, and good morning, everyone. I hope you're well. If you could uh, keep your Bibles open to John chapter 1, that would really help me. And uh, in your bulletins, there's some, a bit of space for um, taking notes if that's something you want to do, and I think that's a good thing to do. I'll tell you what else is good to do is to pray before we begin, so I'm going to do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness in preserving for us the Gospel of John, which we love. And this morning we pray that you would help us to love it more so that we might love the Lord Jesus more and follow him with all our hearts. And we do pray these things in his beautiful name. Amen. You know, I start by asking the question, what do you think of religion? Now, in some ways, self-selecting crew, aren't you? You're in church on a wet Sunday morning, but what do you think of religion? On the one hand, it's a very normal part of uh, being a human being, like you're investigating the spiritual side of life. On the other hand, there are a lot of, let's say, unusual religions out there. Have you heard of a religion called Santeria? Uh, it is a, uh, it's got millions of followers from all across the world, from all walks of life, apparently. Doctors, lawyers, politicians, thieves, gangsters. You might joke and say that, it all sounds like the same person. Anyway, according to the official website, it is a religion of mystery, trance, possession, blood, and sex. And if you want to know more, apparently, go to the ceremonies, burn the candles dance to the drums, and the ancient gods will recognize their own. That's Santeria. Another religion uh, you might have heard of is called Rastafarianism, um, which kind of emerged from Jamaica, but it's very tightly connected to returning to Africa, especially the African country called Ethiopia. And it's distinctively Rastafarian to wear your hair in dreadlocks, and Rastafarians emphasize the smoking of marijuana, which they consider to be a holy herb. So see if you can try that line. The herb apparently is the key to a new understanding of the self, the universe, and God. It is the vehicle 
to cosmic consciousness, Rastafarians will say. So they might be two of the more unusual religions in the world, but when you think about it, most of the world is religious in one form or another. Uh, Even atheism has a a certain religious ring to it from a certain angle. Uh, It's certainly got a dogma of its own uh, and uh, dogmatic disciples as well. I think it requires a degree of faith, which I'm, I'm sure atheists would disagree with me on that one. Uh, but if you think about it, uh, atheists start with very honest designs, right? Not wanting to believe anything that cannot be proved, whether that's via scientific evidence or philosophical reasoning or the like. And because they find no evidence for God, they do not believe God, which sounds very reasonable, except that it does assume that the evidence available is discernible by scientific discovery or philosophical reasoning rather than other means, spiritual means, for example. And I just think that requires a bit of faith, doesn't it? And it further assumes that because you haven't found God, let's say, in the portion of stuff that is available to you, in other words, the stuff you know that's in blue there, that he cannot exist in that vast expanse of knowledge that you haven't accessed or that's not available to you, in other words, the stuff you don't know. And I'm just saying that requires a little bit of faith. But all of that is really just a bit of an aside. Thank you for indulging me because going back to religions, as we typically think of them, most religions, certainly Santeria, certainly Rastafarianism, are about what you need to do to get to God or to be right with God or gods. And if you're into Santeria, that involves sacrificing chickens and dancing to the drums. Uh, And if you're a Rasta, that means getting dreads and smoking the holy herb. And if you lived in the time of Jesus, that would have meant keeping Jewish religious rituals and traditions because in the time of Jesus, the Jews and the Pharisees had kind of morphed God's wonderful Old Testament scriptures into a bunch of human rules and traditions. And I just think Rastafarianism sounds like a bit more fun, don't you? (laughs) Although the dreads would be challenging for me. (laughs) For the, uh, the next three weeks, <laughs> for the next three weeks, we're going to see Jesus renovate religion, like Emily kind of um, prefaced for us. Firstly, today, here at a wedding, uh, then next week um, at the temple, and then the following week with one of Israel's religious teachers called Nicodemus. But today, as Jesus turns water into wine, we're going to discover that he brings something so much better than Santeria, so much better than Rastafarianism so much better than kind of Jewish cultural traditions, so much better than all human religion. So firstly, let's get to the point. Straight from the text in John 2, Jesus performs an extraordinary and amazing miracle. He turns water into wine, lots of it. Slightly awkward this morning at 8 o'clock in the communion service when it looked like we had actually run out of wine. The irony was not lost. Anyway, Jesus turns water into wine, lots of it very early in his ministry as you can tell John chapter 2 he's only just appointed his first disciples like we saw last week and he has been so keenly anticipated from the ministry of John the Baptist and he's invited to a wedding near his hometown in a place called Cana so that's interesting Jesus is a party goer not a party pooper and furthermore because he's at a wedding he doesn't think of that kind of a monastic singleness is some kind of higher spiritual existence even though he himself was single so he's kind of affirming creation and he's affirming marriage uh, by being here at this wedding 
with his disciples, those five uh, chaps we learnt of last week, all local boys. And he's there with his mum. And she probably had some responsibility for the catering. You know, the little um, the party pies and the little mini pizzas. Sorry, I forgot I was in Manly. I mean the duck pancakes. Yeah. And uh, there's a problem with the catering. And in verse 3, when they have no more wine, Jesus' mum says to him, they have no more wine. Now, we've got a lot of mums here. And mums are the best people in the world. Are you not mums? Dead set you are. I love my mum, great lady. But um, I found in my mum, she just had this habit of stating the most obvious thing as though she were the only person in the universe to notice it. You know, I remember coming home from the beach and I was burnt to a crisp. Like, so bad, it hurt to walk. So you walk in the door, my mum would say, gee, you got burnt today. Thank you, mum. Hadn't noticed. Or you get the report card. It shows you got a big F for maths and you're in despair a black cloud around your head mum gets the report and says you failed maths like she was the first person to notice it in the whole world (laughs) they have no more wine says Jesus mum and in those times it's a major social faux pas like it's it's a shameful embarrassment for the bridegroom because he was responsible for buying all the supplies for this celebration that would last for a matter of days I mean think about it it'd be like Um, One of our children or grandchildren getting married and before all the guests had had their dinner, they run out of food because you didn't pay the venue enough money. Okay, highly embarrassing. And so uh, Mary raises it with Jesus and I'm not exactly sure what she expected him to do about it because we're told in verse 11, have a look there, that it's his first miraculous sign. So it's not like he's got this long track record of fixing problems via wondrous means. She'd probably just got accustomed to, to relying on the resourcefulness of Jesus, her eldest son, because it appears that her husband Joseph has passed away by this time. And so she very naturally turns to Jesus. But look at his reply in verse 4. Very strange. Why do you involve me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Okay, let's just press pause for a moment because I think that is an odd way to refer to your mother, don't you? She's just doing kind of the normal motherly thing. And in the original language, it's courteous. It's not rude, but it's hardly endearing. And it's certainly abrupt. Why do you involve me, woman? And uh, one of the things you'll notice, I think, as you read through the Gospels... Uh, is that whenever Mary appears, at least up until the death of Jesus, he almost distances himself from her as mother. Of course, by the time you get to John 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says to his disciple John, John, this is now your mum. You've got to look after her. But it's as if here he's saying to her, look, you are my mother, but you need to view me as Messiah, just like everyone else does, not as a son. But secondly, this whole deal with my hour has not yet come. Well, in John's gospel, the hour means the hour of his death. It means the hour of his crucifixion. So let me get this straight. She asks for help with the catering. He responds, I'm not ready to die. Very odd response, isn't it? And I think what Jesus is saying is that with the approach of his death, everything changes, everything. Yep including family relationships, even his relationship with his own mother changes. But actually, even more than that, he's picking up on, a, on symbolism in her question that she's not thinking about. Right? She's worried about this wedding ending 
embarrassingly. And he's saying, listen, there's going to be wine. There's going to be rivers of it. There's going to be lots of it. Don't worry about that, but it's just not the right time. See, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they spoke to the people of God as they lay in captivity, first in uh, Assyria and then later in Babylon. And they said, there is a time coming when you will be restored. Mm. You won't be in captivity. You'll be in your own land and the wine is going to flow in abundance. If you're taking notes, write down Amos chapter 9. But I'll read a bit out to you. Amos chapter 9, for example, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, when the planter will be uh, by the one treading the grapes. New wine is going to drip from the mountains. It's going to flow from the hills. God says, I will bring back my exiled people. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. You see, it's a, it's a vivid picture, isn't it, of a time in the future when the people will be back in their home and there'll be abundance. I mean, it's as, as if the fruit will grow faster than the workers can keep pace. New wine's going to drip from the mountains. It's a metaphor for a restored relationship with God and the abundance of life that he brings, of a deliverance that has been hard won by God and much enjoyed by the people. And Jesus kind of picks up on this symbolism and says, do you know, it's on its way. It's coming. Ultimately, it's intimately connected with the hour of his death. But it's just not here yet. Not yet. And Mary kind of gets that because in verse 5, you'll see, she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. So she actually already becomes a little bit more like a faith-filled disciple than what she was previously, presumably just as Jesus wanted. And, and so he tells the servants to fill up these big jars with water right to the very top. Uh, they could hold 100, 150 litres of water, fill them to the brim. So there's no cheeky way he could slip in some you know, wine-flavoured cordial or anything like that. And when Jesus told them, he said, now draw some out and give it to the master of the banquet. Of course, the master of the banquet doesn't know what's gone on, but what he knows is that he's not drinking any old water anymore. It is the best wine of the show so far. Because he says very excitedly to the bridegroom, who may not have known the peril he was about to be in. Have a look at verse 10. Uh, most people bring out the good stuff first, but, but you, you know, they, they bring out the cheaper stuff when the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till last. Amazing. So that's, it's just an extraordinary miracle in and of itself. I mean, uh, you think if you'd have seen it with your own eyes or tasted it with your own lips. And it does point to the abundance of life that will, with God that will come following Jesus' death. But there is a further significance to this miracle because Jesus replaces the stale wine of religion with the new wine of Christianity. He replaces stale religion with faith in Christ and in so doing, he has saved the best till now. And look, the, you might think, gee, Scott, you're, you're stretching it there, aren't you? But the hint that that's the kind of meaning of the miracle is in these big, these six big stone jars that are right there. Because in verse 6, have a look, it's very important to see this. Verse 6, John deliberately tells us, they are the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. That is, as part of the Jewish custom, as part of their tradition, Jews would kind of wash their hands ceremonially before they would eat. 
In fact, uh, Mark chapter 7, if you want to take notes, Mark chapter 7 describes it. Uh, Mark says, The Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash, and they observe many other uh, presumably man-made traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Santerians sacrifice chickens, beat the drums. Rastas get dreadies, smoke the holy herb. Pharisees and first century Jews observed ceremonial washing rituals. And they thought this practice, this washing, this ceremony, this religion made them clean before God and right with him. Truth is that washing rituals don't make you clean before God. And in Mark 7, Jesus says such rituals don't make you right before God because they don't change your heart, do they? It's just an external thing. He says to the Pharisees and the Jews of his day, you can do the rituals, but your heart is still far from God. You can wash your hands or you can sing the song or you can pray the prayer according to your custom, but your heart is still far off. So it doesn't make a difference. If it doesn't change your heart, you wash the outside of your body, but that can't clean the stuff on the inside that really is dirty. And, and Jesus is not so much critiquing Old Testament scripture, of course not, as he is critiquing the way the people of his day had morphed those wonderful spirit-filled commands into empty forms and legalistic rituals. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, he will say, you guys, not you guys, like the Pharisees, <laughs> You guys nullify the word of God by your traditions. In other words, you go through the motions and you go through the forms and you go through the rituals. But if that's it, then that's all. Those traditions and rituals neither neither make you right with God nor deal with the very heart of the human problem, which is the problem of the human heart. Now, don't you think that is the essence of the problem with all kinds of human religion? Things can look rosy on the outside, but what's inside is rotten. No wonder people are suspicious of religion and religious people. We see it amongst priests and ministers who abuse children, and then their superiors and their structures cover it up. We see it often in the lives of celebrities, don't we? Everything looks good on the outside, and then something happens, and we find out what they're really like. Now, to be a bit unfair, pick on um, a local boy, since we're talking about weddings. He got married in Forestville. Did you know that? Mel Gibson, married in Forestville. So highly acclaimed for um, making a movie as kind of uh, beautiful and engrossing and evocative as The Passion of the Christ. Gets busted while he's drink driving and launches into anti-Semitic tirades and then he's dragged through the courts for abusing his wife. And you think, Mel... Where did that come from? That's right, it came from the inside, didn't it? Uh, There are lots and lots of examples from the world of sports. I mean, rugby league players, it's just the gift that keeps giving, isn't it? But let's consider the most um, famous golfer of our generation. Because you think golf, you think kind of placid, right? So you think Tiger Woods, who's trying to keep it quiet, tend to associate golf with discipline, with focus, real mind over matter sort of stuff. And for years, he was the consummate professional, the master golfer. You wouldn't bet against him. 
He seemed so in control of everything. And then you find out, oh, he was abusive towards his Swedish wife and had, had like at least a dozen affairs with other women. And you think, Tiger, where did that come from? That's right, it came from the inside, didn't it? And it's not just sporting stars and celebrities. Us ordinary people are no different, are we? We're no different. And that was the problem with the way Jewish religious traditions had come to be practiced in Jesus' day. You can follow the external rules and still stay broken on the inside. And that's the problem that remains with human religion today. They cannot make you right before God if they do not deal with the human heart. Uh, Now, you're probably not Santorian, and I don't see lots of dreadlocks out there. I'm guessing you're probably not all that interested in Jewish ceremonial washing. But here's the thing. Everyone has a religion of sorts, don't they? Their own way of being clean or right before God or just kind of being okay. Everyone has their thing that they trust in. If you remember last year, we, uh, we recognized that people who live on the northern beaches, that's our people, twice as likely to say they're of no religion than the average Australian. So they're not hardened, committed atheists as such, but no religion is the box that they tick But if you think about it, they're still putting faith in the fact that they're a good person, however defined. And you might have friends like that, or you might even be like that yourself. A good person. Hopefully good enough for God. I mean, no one's perfect, but hopefully the good outweighs the bad, right? But here's the thing. The the religion of being a good person is, is not that different from the Jewish traditions. Because in both cases, there's a hope that the good deeds... The external stuff somehow wipes out the bad and hoping that our good deeds outweigh the bad doesn't actually fix the heart. Uh, I think it, it actually hardens your heart. If you decide you're really good at being, God, uh, at being good, you become proud, don't you? And you harden your heart towards God. I don't need you, God. I'm actually quite good, good enough on my own. Of course, on the flip side, if you're hopeless at being good, you'll be depressed But either way, no matter what's happening on the outside, it doesn't fix what's on the inside. certainly doesn't cleanse us from sin. You know, the scriptures say that when we try to be a good enough person without God, our good deeds are like filthy rags in comparison to his perfection. So that's not going to work. But there stands, you count them, six of these stone jars, these ceremonial jars for for cleansing and and they represent Jewish religious traditions, but actually they represent all kinds of human religions. Santeria, Rasta, Northern Beaches, good person, no religion, religion, whatever it is. And Jesus brings something that is better because he replaces the stale water of religion with the new wine of faith in Christ. And it says he saved the best until now. Replaces the stale water of all human religion with the abundant wine of his mercy and grace. He saved the best until last. He brings something better. Let me testify to you, friends and brothers and sisters, faith in Christ is better than human religion because it actually cleanses us from our sins so we can be right, truly right before God. It fixes our hearts, the inside, firstly by recognizing there is darkness and transgression and sin in there that we cannot overcome by ourselves and our own efforts. It recognizes it and then it deals with it by forgiving it only on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross when it wasn't wine that flowed freely but was his own blood. Yes, it does. 
and then it unites our hearts with God's heart and then it reorients our heart, turning our focus and attention off ourselves and onto others and upwards towards God. So what I'm saying is that faith in Christ is better because it brings an inward transformation. It renovates our hearts so that we are neither arrogant before God because we think we're good enough without Him, nor depressed because we think we can never be good enough for Him. He fixes our hearts so we are declared definitively to be right before God, not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done. And then further so that we can live with right hearts before Him. He replaces the stale water of human religions of all kinds with the new wine of the Christian gospel. The mercy, the forgiveness that he offers is abundant. It's overflowing. It is choice. It is better by far. And I do wonder whether the people of the northern beaches who are suspicious of religion understand that about us. Don't you? Here in John chapter 2, as uh, Emily said, Jesus performs uh, his first sign that points to the abundant life that he will bring. But of course, only comes after the hour of his death. But that death brings a new way of being truly cleansed from our sin and being made right with God. The question is, what difference does that make to us today? How do we respond? And I, uh, look, I think the first way to respond is that we actually need to just stop trying and trusting in man-made religion. You're not sacrificing chickens. I get that. Uh, hopefully you're not smoking the holy herb, trying to commune with God. If you are, let's have a conversation about that. Uh, and I know that you don't think that washing your hands is somehow going to make you right either, but I do wonder whether many of us are basically committed to the Northern Beaches religion of being a good person, not being too bad, kind of doing our bit, just with a little bit of Christian stuff thrown into the mix. Basically, our hope remains that the good in us outweighs the bad. Friends, let me say very clearly, if that is what you think will make you right with God, whether that's in the form of private morality or community involvement or church service, whatever it is, you are mistaken. Nothing other than trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ will do it. Being good without God does not cleanse your sin. It hardens your heart. Haven't you found that? It can make you either proud before God or it makes you depressed before Him. And so I'm not saying don't do good. I'm just saying if you do it to somehow twist God's arm to manipulate Him rather than as the free response of forgiven people, it's just not going to work. I'm not saying don't give up on... I'm not saying... Don't do good works. Double negatives. Confuses me. I'm not saying don't give up on good works. No, I don't even know what I'm saying now, do I? (laughs) What am I saying? Keep doing good works. What I am saying is give up on human religion. Because Jesus has replaced it with something that's so much better. It actually changes us from the inside out. Secondly, because Jesus has replaced religion with something much better, his mercy, his grace, forgiveness via his death on the cross so we can be right with God, we actually need to see that it's better. Do you know what I mean? Some of us might be persuaded of the truth of Christianity, but we are equally convinced it means we miss out on life. Everything that life holds in this part of the world. And, and so what we do, we occupy a very awkward position with a foot in both worlds, 
And we're trying to get the best out of both worlds at the same time. So we're both a compromised hedonist, pleasure seeker, and we're a compromised Christian. You know, we're just equally devoted to whatever it is, success, acquisition, pleasure, experience in whatever form, as we are to following Christ. And you can't do both well. It must be so dissatisfying. Of course, following Jesus in this life will mean we forego a part of what this life has to offer. But that's only because we're holding out for perfection in the life to come. But I'm saying to you people, can you not see? Can you not see that even in this life with Jesus, forgiveness, cleansed hearts, cleared consciences, peace with God, future hope and current purpose is so much better than even the very best of what this life in this part of the world holds. It is better with Jesus. It really is. Now as we finish the disciples, <laughs> these fairly unimpressive mob of gentlemen, if you could call them that, they'd seen all this go on in front of their eyes. You know. They'd seen, have a look at verse 11, the first of these miraculous signs or signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and they put their faith in him. They believed in him. I wonder if you, you've seen anything like what they saw. Six massive jars filled to the very brim, turned by Jesus into an abundant supply of new and choice wine. A sign of the age to come, sure. A, a, a sign of the age ushered in by his own hour of death, which was also the hour of his glory. Definitely. The disciples saw it. No doubt they tasted it and they believed in him. Sounds like something that you and I should do, don't you think? Put our faith in him. Not just because he can turn water into wine, but because he can take all of our human traditions and religious practices and the things that we trust in and replace them with something better because he replaces them with himself, with his life and his death and his resurrection that can actually fix our hearts, who cleanses us from the inside out and then changes our hearts so that we can live rightly under God, who changes our focus off ourselves and onto others and upwards to God. In Cana, at a wedding, Jesus renovated religion. He revealed his glory to his disciples, and they believe. Should we not also believe? Why don't you join with me in prayer that we do just that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. We want to thank you for this first of his signs that revealed his glory, that pointed to his coming death and the abundance of life that he would offer us. We thank you that he replaces all of our human traditions, our practices that we rely on, stuff that we do, stale stuff, with just the choice wine of faith in him. Forgive us for the times where we've actually thought, nah, following Jesus isn't the best. Remind us deep in our hearts that following him is better by far. Pray that might make a massive difference to just the small things in life as well. And we pray these things in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Folks, we're going to finish by singing a song. It's our final song. It'll be an offertory song as well. A chance to give to the gospel if you're one of our regulars. 
Chas put in a connect card in the bag so they come around as well. Stand and sing, eh?